encouraging update from the Czech Republic. What a joy it is to see the Lord's work in the Bible Church at Kladno and continuing the work through his servants, Marcus and Amy Denny. That's just a, such a great encouragement to our hearts, and we encourage you to continue to pray and to uh, seek the Lord as to the opportunities that's before us this summer. And whether you uh, serve by prayer or by giving financially or going personally overseas, uh, what a, an encouraging um, opportunity that is to minister the gospel um, in the Czech Republic. Well, we're going to get into the Word this morning, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to uh, the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we're continuing our study of this great epistle, and as we come to the Word, let's uh, bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to sing your praise, to acknowledge that you are our God and our King, and to worship you on this Lord's day. Lord, it is you who has put this song of praise into our hearts, that before we were saved, before you reached into our lives and brought us to Christ, we had only rage and anger and cursing toward you. And yet by your grace, you have transformed our hearts and given us the fruit of worship in our lives. And Father, we want to continue that heart of worship as we come before your word. We desire to receive your word in all humility and to submit our lives under your scripture that we may receive blessing and that you may be glorified. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would lead us and guide us into the truth, and that you would transform our hearts by what we learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. You will remember from two weeks ago that we're studying the great doxology of Paul in verses 3 to 14. This doxology introduces the book of Ephesians, and it is one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Paul opens his mouth, and praise spills forth. His heart is overflowing with this great theme of God's grace, and he blesses the God and Father of, his Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives this great doxology, which focuses on the greatness of our salvation in Christ. The theme of this doxology is the wonders of God's grace. The wonders of God's grace that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Paul goes on in this doxology to enumerate, to specify what these blessings are. He says in verse 3, we've received the blessing of election. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. He says in verse Five, that we have received the blessing of adoption. We have been predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, we have received the blessing of redemption. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In verse 8, he says, we receive the blessing of revelation. In all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In verse 11, he says, we have received the blessing of an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in verse 13, he brings this doxology to a climax, saying that we have received the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul's purpose in this doxology is to show the believer that we have been blessed with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have not just been blessed with some spiritual blessings. We have not just been blessed with many spiritual blessings. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And it is as Paul looks at these blessings, it is as these blessings come to captivate his heart that his heart is filled with praise and with adoration. His heart is filled with worship and with wonder. He stands speechless before the grace of God and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I remind you, dear brothers and sisters, that we as sinners do not deserve God's blessing. We as sinners deserve God's cursing. We are cursed because of the sins that we have committed, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Yet because of the work of Christ on the cross, God has put our cursing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has taken the blessings that Christ has earned through Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, and he has given it to us as an expression of his grace. Galatians 3.14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the great reversal that is at the heart of the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At the cross, God treated Jesus as if Jesus had sinned every single one of our sins. And then in an expression of his amazing grace, he now takes the righteousness of Jesus and he places it on us. He treats us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life although all we have done is sin against him. And so Paul stands amazed at the grace of God. And he says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as Jesus took every single one of our sins and paid for it at the cross. So now God has taken every single one of the blessings that Jesus has earned and given it to us in our salvation. His heart is overwhelmed by the theme of God's grace in Christ. His heart is overwhelmed by the wonders of salvation that God has poured these blessings upon our lives. And so he opens his mouth to praise his God. He opens his mouth to bless his God and out comes one of the longest doxologies in the Bible. Now I want you to note here that while this doxology is one long run-on sentence in the Greek, it does not it has an orderly flow. It has a logical sequence. We see in verses 4 to 6 that Paul focus on, focuses on the work of the Father in salvation. The way that the Father has blessed us in our salvation in Christ. In verses 7 to 12, Paul focuses on the work of the Son in salvation. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul focuses on the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day we receive our inheritance. So the blessings of the Father, the blessings of the Son, and the blessings of the Holy Spirit are Paul's focus in this great doxology. And he unfolds for us the work of each person of the Trinity as the triune God has accomplished our salvation in Christ. Each of these sections ends with the phrase, to the praise of his glory, or to the praise of his glorious grace, reminding us that the ultimate purpose of this salvation is to give God praise for all eternity. The work of the Father in eternity past had the purpose of giving God praise in eternity future. The work of the Son had the very same purpose, and the work of the Spirit has that purpose as well. All of the work of salvation is to the praise of His glory. It is to the praise of His glorious grace, so that God may be worshipped and praised and adored through all the endless ages which are to come. And so as we are looking at this great doxology, 
We are praying that this, these truths would take root in our hearts. I'm praying that these truths would take root in your heart so that your heart would be filled with praise and with wonder. Christian, do you live your daily life in this way? Do you live your life in awe of the wonder of God's grace? Do you go through daily life just forgetting what God has done? Or is your heart bubbling forth with praise just as Paul was, even as you go through your everyday life, even as you're shuttling the kids to school, even as you're going to class or studying for a midterm, even as you're in the office working as a project, is your heart filled with wonder at the grace of God and salvation in Christ? And just saying in, your, in the internal monologue of your heart, saying, blessed be God, blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this passage has been given to us so that we may experience that heart of worship, so that we would fulfill the purpose to which we were saved, which is to the praise of his glorious grace, so that we too as Christians would walk in a heart of worship and and praising God and giving him thanks and adoration for the great things that we have done. Brothers and sisters, I said to you two weeks ago that if we do not begin with worship, then there is nothing else in the Christian life that we, cannot fuf- we can fulfill. Everything in the Christian life is an expression of worship. We do all things to the praise and the glory of, of God. And so this passage is so necessary for our hearts that these truths would take root in our hearts, that they would bear fruit in our lives, and that they would bear fruit of the heart of worship and praise. So we come now in our study to verse 4. The work of the Father in salvation. Paul says that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he says, even as, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the key phrase phrase there, verse 4. He chose us. He chose us. Eklego in the Greek, which refers to a specific act of God in eternity past in which he sovereignly selected some to be the recipients of his grace. He chose us. He chose us. The preposition ek in that verb, eklego, means out of or from, which carries the picture that out of all the people who were ever to live, out of all the people who would descend from Adam's line, God chose some. God chose some of all of the mass of humanity to come out of that humanity and to be the special recipients of his amazing grace so that this select people that he has chosen would give him worship and praise for all of eternity. He chose us to the praise of his glorious grace. When Grudem writes that election is the act of God before creation in which he chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. The last part of that definition is very important. Some say, well, election is that God looked through the corridors of time and he saw that there would be some who would choose him. And based upon their choice of him, he then decided to choose them for salvation. But that is not what this passage is teaching us. If there was anything that we would have done in order to influence God to choose us, it would have been included in verse 4. You'll notice that Paul does not say that even that he chose us because he saw something that we would or would not do. No, what is noticeably missing from this text is any activity or any influence of man or any choice that would have influenced God to make this choice of us. Instead, the verse focuses 100% completely on the sovereign act of God, that he chose us. And so election is not that God looked through the corridors of time and saw what we would do and then responded to our choice of him. No, 
Election is that in eternity past, before the creation of the world, in a time when only God existed, God made a sovereign choice of those who would be saved. And he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be his beloved children. We're looking here this morning at the doctrine of sovereign election. The doctrine of sovereign election is one of the great doctrines that's in the Bible. It is one of the foundational truths that is in the scriptures. And it is the doctrine with which Paul begins with as he praises God and worships him for the greatness of salvation. May I say that this doctrine is essential to your worship. May I say that this doctrine is essential to your praise. May I say that this doctrine is essential for you to have a heart of joy, to have a heart of praise to God. May I say that this doctrine is the foundation, it is the basis for all the other blessings that we receive in the gospel. If you're saying to me, Dan, I want to live a gospel-centered life. I want the blessings of the gospel to be at the center of my life. I want to dwell on the blessings of the gospel day and night. I want these blessings to transform my heart and my life. Then, brother and sister, I will say to you, then you need to understand the doctrine of election. Because it is the doctrine of election that is the basis, is the foundation for all the other blessings that we receive in the gospel. It is the doctrine of election. Without election, there is no adoption. Verse 5. If we have not been chosen, then we are not adopted as sons in Jesus Christ. If there is no election, then there is no redemption, verse 7. And we have not been bought by the blood of the Lamb. If there is no election, there is no forgiveness. If there is no election, then there is no revelation. If there is no election, then there is no inheritance. If there is no election, then there is no Holy Spirit. All of the blessings that are given to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ can be traced back to the act of God in eternity past in which he chose a select people to put his amazing grace on display so that he will be praised forever and ever. And brothers and sisters, may I say this, that if God had not first chosen us, then there is no way that we would have chosen him. If God had not first chosen us, then you and I would have never chosen him. Why? Because Ephesians 2 verse 1 says we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You say, how dead were we? We were dead, 100% dead. We could not choose. We could not respond. We could not decide even to make Christ our Lord and Savior. If God had not first chosen us, then you and I would not have chosen him. Every blessing that is found in the gospel can be rooted, traced back to the foundational truth that it is God in eternity past who chose us. He chose us and praise God that he did not choose us because of any foreseen merit he saw in us because if God would have looked through the corridors of time to see who we would be and what we'd have done, all he would have seen is our sin. And there would have been no basis for him to make a sovereign, to make a choice of us. I praise God that it was not because God foreknew any decision that I would make that he made a decision to choose me. Because he would have had no basis to choose me. Because all he would have seen is my choice to sin and my choice to blaspheme and my choice to curse him and my choice to run from him. No, this doctrine does not teach that God responded to anything that you and I did. No, this doctrine teaches that God acted purely according to his sovereign will. He acted independently. He acted uninfluenced. He simply chose because it was his will to do so. Verse 5 says, he, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. He did it because he chose to do it. Now, I know that that answer is difficult for us to process. We are used to hearing answers that terminate in us. 
We're used to explanations of certain events that terminate in something that you and I did. I went to the grocery store, therefore I have groceries. I studied for a test, and so I got a good grade. I worked hard at this project, and so it was completed. You and I are used to tracing certain events back to something that you and I did so that the answer terminates in us. And we are not used to hearing answers to certain events that terminate completely in God. Why did God choose us? Because it was his will to do so. Why did God choose some and not others? Because it was his good pleasure to do so. Romans 9.15, God explains his saving purposes in this way. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You say, why did God choose some and not others? Because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. Why did God choose me? And not so many people who have, ever, who have lived through the history of time. It, because it is his sovereign will to do so. Romans 9, verse 13, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You say, oh, there must have been something that Jacob did that influenced God to choose him as a recipient of his grace. And there must have been something that Esau did that really just made God mad and made God give up on him. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau to be the recipient of his divine favor? Scripture tells us, Romans 9, verse 10, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love but Esau, I hate it. Paul says even that they were in their mother's womb, before they had done anything good or bad, God had already chose Jacob. And he had already not chosen Esau. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, and Paul says, so then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chooses because of his sovereign pleasure. And here, brothers and sisters, we are dealing with one of the great attributes that is in the Bible, probably one of the most unpopular attributes in our day today, and that is the attribute of God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom to do as he pleases, to whom he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, and God's sovereign freedom to be unaccountable to man for what he chooses to do. He does not owe us an explanation. He is not subject to our approval. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Isaiah 46 9 says, I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose." God is free to do as he pleases. He is free to choose some and not choose others. He is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and to have compassion upon whom he has compassion. We have difficulty with this attribute. We struggle with the attribute of sovereign freedom because of our pride, 
because in our pride we believe that God must be accountable to us, that God's ways and God's actions are subject to our analysis and to our approval. And we also have difficulty with this attribute because of our American culture. We, as Americans, are not used to living under the reign of a sovereign king who does as he pleases. In a democracy, our elected officials are subject to the opinions of the subject that they govern. And yet the kingdom of God is not a democracy. The kingdom of God is ruled by a sovereign, and this sovereign is one who does as he pleases. Now, someone's going to say, well, Dan, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair for God to choose some and to not choose others. It is not fair for God to choose some to be saved and not choose everyone to be saved. Brothers and sisters, I would just say this with great compassion in my heart. I hope you understand my sympathy and my tenderness to that struggle. When I first heard the doctrine of election as a young believer, I hated this doctrine. I raged against it in my human pride. I remember just weeping, weeping for an extended period of time, not tears of joy, but tears of anger at the doctrine of election. You mean that God chooses some and he doesn't choose others? How is that fair? How is that fair, God, that if ultimately we are saved because of your sovereign choice, then how is it fair that you condemn some if they have not been chosen? And I hated this doctrine. It, I, I raged against it. It was very difficult for me to understand or to comprehend. And if you're struggling with the doctrine of God's sovereign election, I just want to say that I sympathize. I want you to say that you have um, I want you to struggle with this teaching. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to see it for yourself in the scriptures. And I'm praying for you that you understand this teaching in a way that would bring joy to your heart. Since then, in the years that I've been a Christian and learning the word of God, I've come to see this as one of the sweetest teachings in all the Bible. Where would I be apart from the doctrine of election? Who would I be apart from God's sovereign choice? It's one of the sweetest teachings in the Bible. It produces humility. It produces worship. It produces sanctification. It produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance. It produces security. There's so many fruits of this doctrine in our lives, and yet it is a difficult teaching to swallow that God is sovereign and God is free. This doctrine shatters the man-centered world in which we live. And it causes us to be humbled before the sovereignty of our God. So I say this with great compassion in my heart. If you're struggling this morning with the teaching of election. But I also want to say this in all truthfulness that if we understand the gospel, and the gospel begins with a holy God, the God is holy and cannot abide iniquity. The gospel begins with the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. The gospel begins with the depths of our sin that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the gospel begins with the terrible truth that not only have we sinned, but we are dead in our sins, that we cannot do anything but sin, that we are unable to save ourselves because of the depths and the influence of our depravity. If we understand the fundamental truths of the gospel, then the question we will ask is not, why didn't God choose everyone? No, brothers and sisters, the question we will ask is, why did God choose anyone? 
Why did God choose anyone to be a recipient of his blessing? Why would God choose anyone to be the recipient of his favor? Why would God choose anyone when everyone has sinned and everyone is condemned and everyone is wicked and depraved and is the enemy of God? Why would God choose any rebel to pour out his compassion, his mercy, his grace on that sinner to the glory of God? Why would God do that to even a single one of this depraved race? That's the question we'll ask if we understand the gospel. If we understand the gospel, we will not rage at God that he did not choose everyone. We'll be amazed by grace that God would choose anyone. For God to choose no one would be an expression of his fairness. Trust me, brothers and sisters, we don't want what's fair. Fair is everyone's in hell right now because of their sins. For God to choose some is an expression of grace. And so God chooses. God chooses sovereignly. God chooses some. And he chooses some to be the trophy case, to be the object that he could put the glories of his grace on display so that all would see how amazing his grace is. We can wrestle with this teaching. We can struggle with what it says, but we cannot deny that it is found in the Bible. John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you in the power and in the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Matthew 22, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. That's just a great way to address the church. Instead of saying, dear brethren or dear Cornerstone Bible Church, just say, you are the elect of God, to the elect, the chosen of God. And he says, you are the elect, those chosen before the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You know that idea of foreknowledge? It really has the idea of intimate relationship. It is not so much that God foreknew the choices that you and I would make, but it is that God, before the foundation of the world, knew us intimately. He knew us personally. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. God knew us in a personal, intimate way. God knew us better than we even know ourselves. And yet, in the exercise of his sovereign freedom, he 
chose us. Although he knew everything about us. That's just the truth that it's just so overwhelming. That God knew me better than my kids know me. God knew me better than my wife knows me. God knew me better than I know myself. He knew me. He knew everything that was about me that could be known. And yet, despite the fact that he knew me, he chose me. That ought to never, we ought to never cease giving God praise for that. That God, despite knowing all of our sins, chose us to be the recipients of his favor. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I love what Revelation 13, verse 8 says. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You know, the Lamb has a book. And the book is called the Book of Life. And the Book of Life has names. And those names were written before the foundation of the world. And if you're a believer, your name is there. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, some are going to say, well, Dan, you can't preach election. Because if you preach election, then no one's going to evangelize. If you preach election to the church, then no one's ever going to share the gospel with anyone else because we'll just sit back and say, well, you know, if God elects and God has chosen, then we don't need to do anything. We just watch and see the elect come to Christ. Someone's going to say, if you preach election, then no one will do missions. No one will share the gospel with unbelievers. But brothers and sisters, may I say to you that this doctrine has the opposite effect. It is not the doctrine of election that undercuts evangelism. It is the doctrine of election that is our only hope for evangelism. You know, if the doctrine of election is not true, then don't evangelize. Don't share the gospel. Don't pray for your unbelieving friend. If the doctrine of election is not true, then evangelism is hopeless because men are dead in their sins. They are blinded by the God of this world. No one seeks for God. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they are worthless. If the doctrine of election is not true, then all our evangelistic efforts are hopeless. You ought to just pack it up and give up. Because man is not going to be reasonable enough to decide that Jesus Christ is the right answer for him. If you believe that man is somehow going to be reasonable enough to see that the gospel is a reasonable answer to his condition, then you have underestimated the power and the influence of sin and the doctrine of total depravity. If the doctrine of election is not true, then there is no hope for our evangelistic efforts. The depravity of man is so deep, it is so corrupt, it is so thorough, and it is so complete that no one will believe if they are not elect. No one will believe. But if the doctrine of election is true, then I say to you this morning, share the gospel with everyone. Share the gospel with everyone. 
share the gospel with the most hardened, foul-mouthed, cursing atheists. Give them the gospel. Share the gospel with the most blasphemous, drug-addicted, idolatrous unbeliever. Give them the gospel. Share the gospel with the most legalistic, religious, moral person who doesn't think they need Christ. Share the gospel with that father or mother or brother and sister who has rejected Christ for oh so long. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Why? Because you do not know if they are not elect. And if they are elect, they will believe in Christ because they have been chosen before the foundation of the world to do so. And the only way, the only way to find out if someone is elect before the foundation of the world or if they are not elect before the foundation of the world is to give them the gospel and see how they respond. Because if they are elect, they will respond with faith and the power of God will come on them in salvation. And if they are not elect, then they will reject the gospel. That's the only way to know if they're elect or they're not elect. That's the only way to know if they're chosen or not chosen. Brother and sister, if you would have met me before I came to faith in Christ, I became a believer sophomore year at UCLA at, at a college. And if you would have met me before I came to Christ, you have not concluded that I was chosen before the foundation of the world. I was out partying. I was out drinking. I was playing in a, in a bad garage band and howling in a microphone and doing all sorts of crazy things. I'm pretty sure that you would not have looked at me and said, oh, there goes one of the elect. Maybe I should share the gospel with him. And I didn't have a big E on my back. Say, elect. Here, here he comes. Here's the elect. Share the gospel with this guy and not with that guy. There's no way you would have known that I would have been elect. There's no way... We would have known any of you would have been elect unless we share with you the gospel and then see how you respond. That's the only way to know who the elect are. If the doctrine of election is true, and it is true, then give the gospel to anybody and to everyone you see. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You ask the question, what keeps a church going in the Czech Republic for 10 years? When after 10 years, you have a handful of converts who, who have come to Christ. What keeps a missionary on the field spending the prime of his life learning a language that is the most difficult language to understand? What keeps them going? What keeps them on the field? Why don't they pack it up and come home? Because it's so difficult. What keeps us sending mission trip after mission trip, just giving the gospel and giving the gospel and ministering to unbelievers? What keeps you going to that person in your life who you have been praying for years that they come to Christ and they have not come to Christ, but you are determined that you will keep, you keep reaching out to them and keep giving them the gospel? What keeps us going in our evangelistic efforts? It is the knowledge, it is the confidence that God has elect in this world. And when the elect hear the gospel, they will come to Christ. You know, if you and I had met Daniel Adamowski before he came to Christ, he's the, 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 the man that, that Marcus is raising up and, and training in the Czech Republic, the Bible Church of Kladno. If you and I had met Daniel Adamowski before he came to Christ, we would have not concluded that he's elect. He would look no different from any other Czech atheist who knows nothing about God. The only way to find out is to give him the gospel. So no, the doctrine of election does not undercut evangelistic efforts. The doctrine of election fuels evangelistic efforts. It is only hope for evangelistic efforts. G.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the only thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. Apart from these doctrines, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel to unbelievers. The doctrine of election is true, and so let us give the gospel to everyone. And brothers and sisters, may I say to you this, 
that not only is the doctrine of election the only hope for our evangelism, the, only, the doctrine of election is the only hope for your sanctification. The doctrine of election is the only hope that you will ever grow in Christ-likeness. Because if the doctrine of election is not true, then you have no hope for overcoming your sin. You are no match for the corrupting influence of sin. In your willpower, you will be defeated time and time again. So if the doctrine of election is not true, then stop repenting, stop fighting sin, stop praying, stop reading the word, stop being disciplined, stop all your efforts to grow in Christ's likeness if the doctrine of election is not true because it's hopeless. But if the doctrine of election is true, then we have been chosen, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. If the doctrine of election is true, then God has determined in eternity past a plan that he is working out in time and space. And the plan that he's working out in time and space is the plan to make us into the likeness of Christ. Because God is the one who is accomplishing that work. In light of that truth, you and I can strive for holiness. And we can seek to be Christ-like. This doctrine is the only hope for evangelism and is the only hope for Christ-likeness, sanctification, growth in Christ. You might be saying, Dan, well, what do we do with the whosoever passages in the Bible? You know the whosoever passages in the Bible? The passages that say that whosoever comes and believes in Christ will be saved? And I'll say to you, we preach them. We preach them, we believe them, we hold them forth. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. John 6.37, whosoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Acts 6.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those passages don't say to the sinner, first, check if you're elect. Make sure that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world and only if you're sure that you're elect, then come to Christ for your salvation. Those passages proclaim with an open invitation. Whosoever comes will be saved. Whosoever comes, I will not cast out. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're struggling with the fact, am I elect? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Whosoever comes will be saved. It is only after that we've come to Christ that God turns us around and shows us before the foundation of the world and he says, the only reason why you came is because you were chosen. So you have nothing to boast in. You have only reason to give God praise. We preach the whosoever passages in the Bible. We preach that man is responsible when they reject the gospel and we also preach passages such as Ezekiel 18:23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? We also preach passages like Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And we also preach passages like 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The doctrine of God's sovereign election does not negate the compassion of God 
upon the plight of the wicked. God, please with the sinner to come and receive mercy. God, please with the sinner to come to Christ. God opens up the invitation to all and says, all who come will be saved. And yet those who are saved are chosen before the foundation of the world. Spurgeon said of the doctrine of election, there is no humbling doctrine, no more humbling doctrine in scripture than that of election. There is no doctrine more promoting of gratitude. There is no doctrine more sanctifying. Believers should not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of scriptures. Those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know but that the Lord has chosen them, it would make their hearts to dance for joy. So I pray that this doctrine would cause your heart to dance for joy. For God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Let's close our time in prayer and give God praise. Our Father, we praise you for the mercy that you have shown to us in our salvation. It is a sovereign mercy. And there is nothing in any one of us that has influenced you to pour your grace upon us. We did not choose you but you chose us. And because you chose us, Lord, you will not finish, you will not stop the work that you began until it is completed in eternity future. And Lord, we see how this is all to the praise of your glory. We see how you receive praise because of your salvation. And so, Lord, we want to just fulfill that purpose to worship you this day, to praise you, to thank you, to bless your name. Lord, may these truths take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.